Hello, this is the Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. Before I introduce today's episode, I've got some good news to share with you. Unfortunately for you lot, that means that this will be a slightly longer introduction than normal, and I'm going to be giving you all some homework to do. First up, I'm delighted to say that we've been shortlisted in the Best Wildcard category for this year's Sabotage Reviews Saboteur Awards. You can vote for us before April 30th at www.sabotagereviews.com and follow the directions on the site to the Saboteur Awards voting page. Alternatively, follow the link in the episode description. Secondly, I'm thrilled to be able to say that we've been shortlisted in the Represent category for the inaugural British Podcast Awards. This category aims to champion podcasts that reach audiences that traditional media fail to reach, and since that pretty much sums up the very reason I started this podcast in the first place, I still can't stop grinning about that particular nomination. The enthusiasm ripples through my voice, I'm sure. This award is being decided by a panel of judges, but if you'd like to vote for us as your favourite podcast of the year, or indeed any other British podcast, you can do so at www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash nominations before April 28th. As always, you can follow everything we're up to at silent underscore tongue on Twitter and at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like what we do, then please do tell your friends. It'll help us a lot. We're trying to reach a new audience. Oh yeah. If you like illuminating between one and five stars on your computer, tablet or phone screen, then why not rate us on iTunes or wherever else you access this podcast? On to the episode finally. Firstly, a big thank you to Arts Council England whose funding made this episode possible, and I've got to say without their financial support we wouldn't be getting shortlisted for any of these awards. Secondly, a big thank you to Spread the Word in Deptford, South East London for letting us use their office space for recording this discussion. This episode is hosted by the wonderful Melissa Lee Horton, author of Sunshine, which is one of my favourite collections of poetry out through Penned in the Margins. Melissa is joined by poet and novelist Joe Dunthorne, author of Submarine, and the author of Grief is the Thing with Feathers, Max Porter. The group discuss writing as a compulsion, the differences between poetry and prose in practice, and how, as readers, we still aren't able to divorce the reader from their work. The beginning of the recording got a bit messed up, by me, so just be aware that the first person to respond to Melissa's opening question is Joe Dunthorne. Award-winning stuff, right? There is a full transcript of this conversation to download via the link in the episode description. Here's Melissa. Hello, this is Melissa Lee Horton, standing in for David Turner, and I am speaking today with Joe Dunthorne and Max Porter. So I suppose I've got you both here because I'm um, interested in people who write prose and poetry and have crossover experimental forms and things because it's something that I do myself very interesting. And when I meet writers um, who I really admire, and I do admire you both, I always want to know what compels them to write because it's something that I feel very fiercely that I'm compelled. It's not the same as being inspired. And I feel that when I read your work, I can see that there's a compulsion, there's something necessary that needed to come out. So I suppose my question is, what what compels you to write what you write? I just thought of that thing where people, most writers are either planners or non-planners. And I'm a non-planner. I think the thing I enjoy and the thing I keep coming back to is not knowing and sitting down and being surprised and that seems addictive and has seemed addictive ever since I first tried it, this idea of not having something and then two hours later having a thing you couldn't have guessed. When did you first have that then? Was there, is there a moment you remember when you, th- when you had to sit down and write something and that seemed to start the whole thing off? Well, writing at school I remember maybe like three chances to be to write creatively in my whole school career but they are like diamonds studded in my childhood like my god in school I can do this this is amazing so they stick out really clearly to me that it's like okay this is totally different this isn't school this is amazing when did you start to write is it quite a fairly recently I remember being told we could write anything I remember that I remember 
maybe GCSE or something, them saying this one's creative, and me thinking they bet they're going to regret that because I'm now I'm now going to write this thing. But for me, it was always the compulsion, which is what it is. I agree was was um, was somehow split between draw between making art and making music. So I'd be making music and feel that I needed to draw and then I'd be drawing and I'd think that I needed to be writing and it was a kind of triangular tension and I never really resolved it and I don't think I have and so now when I have the compulsion I tend to draw and my drawings aren't good enough or they're not they don't feel to me like I'm fully able to express myself in my drawing but I can start something and then that so this my book started as drawings and I carry a notebook around and it would be kind of so start with a drawing or something quite diagrammatic and then I, then that will become a couple of lines of prose or poetry doesn't the distinction is invisible to me at that stage and then I'll sort of chase it down and down and down and then I'll get to the stage Joe's describing where you go oh wow I've only been in here an hour or two and I've got something there that I hadn't planned on. Would you describe yourself as a writer then because I, I, I quite like to describe myself as an artist even though I create nothing visual whatsoever because I feel that there's a lot more going on and I'm writing in different forms and I think that as an expression of what I do I prefer the term artist so yeah. I'm quite interested in because your background did you train to be an art historian yeah yeah I mean I'm a bit I suppose I'm a bit anti-capitalist when it comes to describing yourself as a writer yeah. because that implies that you're busy at work on the making of a product which yeah. is going to be writing and sold as such but I, and I and I resent the fact that we're not, as a society now, especially open to. I'm not saying I'm a Renaissance man, but to Renaissance figures that are able to move between different things. There aren't many of them about anymore, and that, but that is, I think, the whole thing of having to write one thing in the box saying what you do for a living. Yeah, you're made, you're made to feel guilty, aren't you, yeah. if, if you claim to be anything closer to a Renaissance person. Yeah. You, you must focus on your subject and yeah. you must dedicate your life to it and do nothing else. Well, if you said you were painting, most people would say, oh, great, you're going to do a show. Or, oh, is it for sale? Or, you know, yeah. that, that, that's a shame because it might just be that you're doing some paintings. Yeah, but, yeah, I, I totally I, I, understand. I, I haven't got very good at saying I'm a writer, because, but partly because of my day job and I never got comfortable with that. And it seemed ridiculous and then at a certain point it seemed, it veered into being ridiculous not to say I was. But even, I'd probably, get way down the list of things I do, I'd, I'd sort of apologetically say writer. It's a weird moment though, isn't it, when you become comfortable with it? For ages, it feels utterly wrong, especially poet. It's like that. Yeah. I mean, that, that comes late. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually, oh, God, I just say it. I say I'm a poet, like I did at the beginning of this podcast, <laughs> and didn't feel a twinge at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of my favourite artists are people that have struggled to, uh, to self-identify over the course of their career. And, and I'm slightly suspicious, especially when it comes to a certain type of male performativity with regards to being a poet, like I'm a poet as a kind of stance, as a kind of mass, you know, as a kind of muscular creator, huge, like someone that chips raw work from the from the cold face that is the world and presents their poetry. This is the man who's, you've that. written a book about Ted Hughes. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> to interrogate, exactly. But, but I think that, that, that I, I, the people I've always loved are the people that scurry away from, as it were, the poetry world or the art world and find themselves kind of on the outskirts Maybe do some drawings, maybe do some poetry, maybe write a libretto, maybe do some letter carving. Those are my, the people I most identify with because they're chasing down the compulsion. Because yeah. I think nothing would be more depressing or boring than being, for example, a novelist and you're, you're on book number 11 and you do your bloody book launch with your mates with their glass of white wine and there's nothing to say because the work's dried up and died years ago. Yeah, That's the kind of fear I have. So being a poet, I remember somebody recently, I think it was Annie Freud, said that there's this twee idea about poets are different, they're different to other people. I remember thinking, it's absolutely not true. I, I live a 24-7 vocation of absorbing and existing, just being in the world and engaging with language in my own mind, and I consider that to be the work of a writer, not necessarily sitting down and writing it down. And you have to be in it, and the people that are really in it all the time and they use their experience, not necessarily write about their experience, but they're using everything, they're interpreting the world in a very different way. So I'd, I would say that you kind of are quite different from other people. Would you agree with me or do you think that's a bizarre philosophy? 
I'm quite romantic about it. I do think that poets, for as long as we've had storytellers of any kind, poets have 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 been different, and and, it, and there are people in any society that are able to get at things, get at truths, or get at the peculiarities of consciousness, and and it does it makes them unusual, and it is a vocation. Yeah, I mean, I I, I I'm not. I'm simultaneously very into that idea and a bit suspicious of it, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I, I really like the idea of it, but in a way that I, like, gaze across the table at it, wouldn't it be nice to be that kind of poet? Because I just don't feel anything mystical or about what I do. I keep doing it, but I, I do think poets like that exist. I'm just not one, and therefore am I not a poet? Don't you think the poetry world is slightly set up to make everyone feel that way? Yeah. Like it's an exclusionary thing, isn't it? Are you poet enough? Yeah, like it's an authenticity contest and it's it's rigged against the people in it. So I guess what um, I've asked you both um, is to talk about the difference between writing prose, writing poetry and the crossovers between the two. And so um, I suppose Joe... When do you know that you want to write a poem rather than write some prose? What is going on in your head? What is compelling you to write either of the two? Well, I think my kind of base function is poetry. (laughs) So if I sit down and just write, then it'll probably come out with broken lines and somewhat like a poem. But sometimes I'll have written a poem and realised that it's a short story or, or that its most ideal form is a short story. And equally, sometimes I write something, I think that's just a it's a poem, but actually, essentially, it's just a bit of notation about yeah. the world. And it may well find a home in a novel at yeah. a later time. I can try and be quite fluid about feeding things into one another. So they're all more or less interchangeable. Just try and find the right form for each story. Yeah. I often just start writing and it just becomes something. So I'm not a planner and... I really like what you said before because that's the excitement I get out of it. I just sit down and whatever comes out suddenly begins to... It takes a shape and that's quite an interesting, beautiful thing. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine anything worse than sitting down and writing, I'm, I'm going to do this. Or having an idea before I had the desire to do it, mm. if you know what I mean. Do you have an idea and then you go from that? Or is it more just you put pen to paper? If I'm writing a poem, I have a word or a line in my head that I write down and then it just happens. Um, but but I'm not... This is what, what... I'm not sure what happens when I start writing dialogue and I start writing a poem. I'm not, I'm not sure what happens when I start writing something that becomes fiction. I'm not... The, so I'm kind of interested. So when you... We're writing your book, and you you said that you were drawing. Um, so how did it how did it become what it is? What what when was the point when you did? You, was it just a page of writing? We thought this is this is it. I'm going to continue with this. No, it was like collage. I had a lot of little bits, and I started to realise that only when I was putting them next to each other was there some energy there. And then yeah. I was kind of hunting down that energy. So it was like a project of juxtaposition. But I also feel that I can't write prose. And, and it's like swimming. I'm swimming in a river. And there is, there, there is something happening. There's generative things happening with what I'm doing. And it's clear water. Suddenly, if I start to write prose, even just more than half a page, and doing conventional things like describing something or having two characters in dialogue it feels like the water is suddenly custard Custard, (laughs) Um, we keep talking about custard off off air let's get this let's get it (laughs) on record but like suddenly it's stodgy suddenly all the electricity that i was feeling is gone so then i realized it was going to be a project of of um whittling back and back and back and that you can do so much in a couple of hundred words and that for me my permission given for that is would seem to be poetry, and I suppose subliminally it's poetry, but actually it's kids' books. It's the speed of what happens, in, especially in, in a rhyming picture book, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I was thinking all the time how to maintain that little electric jolt of recognition you get. You know, and some people, the great hybrid writers, so the obvious one is Anne Carson. You know, in, 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 Anne Car- in the early good Anne Carson, where, where she goes from what seems to be memoir to what seems to be poetry and then what seems to be essay or whatever yeah. and it's not so much those things it's the movement between them starts to get 
starts to make you giddy and it, that's that's yeah. where yeah. the engagement comes from. Well, I was, I was thinking a lot about your book, Grief is a Thing with Feathers, and um, I was thinking about Anne Carson's book, The Beauty of the Husband, and I can see I had a similar feeling um, about them both. I loved Anne Carson's um, collection, be- and I didn't understand that it was a fictional relationship she was writing about. Yeah. It, it was fascinating because I could. Im- I was trying to pick out which bits might be her, yeah. which bits might be an authentic thing, and some things you can imagine they are because they're so unique and specific. To they can't possibly be fictional. I sort of had this in my head, but the energy of that book, and I think you've sort of captured something very similar. So I like that we've mentioned well, for, that. For person. me, it's that the no- we're, we're we're quite late in the history of the thing. I mean, obviously the contemporary always is, but. That- I think the novel has done what the novel does really, really well in very interesting different ways and poetry. But, but I think there is a risk that these things become, once they're formalised into their final form, a collection of poems, a novel, there's a lot of sudden stodginess that comes with the finality of that form. And I'm trying to resist that. I'm trying to to get back to that, some sort of movement in the thing. Some, And it doesn't mean that novels can't have movement or it doesn't mean that poetry collections acquire a certain way but but it's something about with people like Carson I suppose you, you're, what you're getting is is play yeah. and, and the play is the thing for me and I, and I felt that in order to keep myself interested in the writing of it and to feel that the things I was doing making stuff up or telling the truth or making you know that all those things that you do when you write anything they were only going to interest me if if they kept on moving yeah. in, in, in in the internal complexity of of of, of the different forms, yeah. so I don't know whether I can when I, whether I can get that sense of energy again for myself if I wrote a piece of prose or if I wrote poems. I think it's only in the hybrid form that I'm going to find that. It's about having a lot of variety. I see you both as writers that have to have a lot of variety and movement. Um, you very um, you can adapt very easily, particularly you, Joe. I mean, it, somebody asked me actually last night about they've read your poetry and they've not read your novels and they wanted to know if how what your novels were like and if they were anything like your poetry and I was just I had to think about it and uh, I, and um, I won't I won't tell you what, what I said but how do you see the similarities between the two different things that you write well it's interesting what Max is saying about that sense of variety and the kind of electricity of moving between one within poetry, you know, the, you have the opportunity to really do that a lot, especially in a, a book of poems. And that's always what's appealed to me, the idea that, again, it's I think it's slightly disapproved of, because like the dream poetry collection in my like anxious mind is that it's this one contained thing of beauty that has one direction, one mode. But that's never what drew me to poetry. I always loved the thought I could just do everything and go everywhere and and change. And then in fiction, it is a challenge. And with my first novel, I tried to include lots of different types of writing, mainly to keep... That's not true. Partly to keep me interested and partly to keep the reader interested because I had one character, one perspective, 300 pages... And I tried to find all the possible ways that I could vary that voice. Yeah. Not just in terms of the, like some of it's in diary, some of it's in uh, like a pamphlet, some of these different things, but also just in terms of the movement, psychological movement of, of someone over a year, how you become all these different people. And so in one chapter, he seems like a cruel bastard. In the next chapter, he seems like a jolly sort of frivolous, you know, like that movement as well, not just formal. But in prose, I think it is really difficult. And I, this novel I've just finished, it ended up being really short because I couldn't find other ways to vary it. I couldn't find, it just had to be one voice, one direction, one movement, and therefore it had to be really short yeah. because I couldn't, I couldn't imagine doing that over 300 pages with no other places to go. Yeah. I just needed, okay, this has to be tiny. But with a novel as well, you're listening... I, to the to the project to the book in ways you're not with a poetry collection because in, in each poem has its own internal logic and then you perhaps think later about the coherence of the collection yeah. or you want to violate the perceived coherence of a collection and play with it or put things in that don't belong and stuff. But there's no like I, I can't speak in any kind of broad 
notional terms about what I intend to do with fiction because I, I, that book took the form it took because I was trying to write about grief and childhood. It, it, violate, it violated the subject every time I tried to write conventional prose. It was an, mm. actually an affront to the children in the book and to the, to the chaotic brain of experiencing grief to try and polish it up into normal prose. With poetry collections, I think, like, I'm reading this book, that Sophie Collins book. Have you heard the big thing? The anthology. No, I haven't read that. It's, it's about translation. It's about the different types of translation. She, she labels three different types of translation. But one of the exciting things for me about that, it's got lots of good poems in it, like it's got Rachel's Fortran poems in it and stuff like that, is the, is the movement between um, the, tran- you know, the, the translated work and the original and then, yeah. the, and then also the annotator, the, the, the introducer or the curator of the project, whose voice is always in play saying why they included it. <clears throat> and that started to be much more interesting to me than the poems themselves, was, yeah. the, was the, the architecture of the whole. It makes me think of how good a poem is when it's quoted in an essay, when, it, when the stanza <coughs> of a poem interrupts an essay mm. and it's the greatest moment. Both the poem is better then when you find it, oh, I'll look up that poem, you look it up, you're like, I wish I'd just yeah. stayed at the stanza in the essay. Yeah, the Simon Critchley book about Wallace Stevens. I, lo- I actually do love Wallace Stevens, but if you just read his beautiful book about poetry, and specifically Wallace Stevens, it, it, it just, if you'd never read Wallace Stevens, you'd absolutely have to go and read some straight away. Yeah. It, it can do that. This is a wonderful thing, I think sort of critical writing is very important for poetry. I don't think it could really exist without it. That's a whole other mm. conversation, but yeah, it's a... It's but that a, is sort of the relationship, I think, I don't want to speak for you, Joe, because you're someone who happens to do both prose and poetry. But I mean, I think when I speak to some poets about what they're doing outside of the poetry, that is, so much of it is is practical. It's to do with the fact that you have an editor, you deliver them a set of poems, you're submitting them to magazines, then you've got enough, so you do a collection. That's quite a specific set of mainly yeah. like economic things. Yeah. Are, and I think therefore a poet has to work quite hard to recapture for themselves their, their own as their own like reading map or writing map, whatever it is, and, and that might sometimes lead them into poetry, and I think more often it leads them into critical writing, which yeah. is a way to kind of smack... Because I, I do this... But, my day job is to is to be inside other people's work, yeah. inside other people's novels a lot of the time, and that and that's that's quite a, a loaded thing. It's quite a, it's quite a stressful thing. It's quite an important thing. That's like a privilege to do, but the rules are very different. I think I'd be a very different writer if that wasn't my day job. Mm. Partly because I'm working so hard to keep some of that thinking out of what I'm writing, but and then I have to admit, like off the record, but on the record, it's fine. Like that that what I w- will write will be in reaction to what I'm working on in the day. It will be right. work, writing against the work of the people I'm publishing. Yeah, you that know. makes that makes total sense. So, is there a sense that you are pissed off with having spent all day reading this one? I say this one kind. Yeah. That's unfair yeah. on your <coughs> excellent publishing record, but you know, on on yeah. a particular kind of fiction. And then you want like, okay, I'm going to do the opposite, or is it that you don't want to kind of Across the Venn diagrams of your life, a bit of both. But I think the main thing for me, the main struggle, is that with, say, I'm editing someone's book, I, I, you've got to be their their soulmate. You've got to be at, you've got to be their intellectual playmate in the work they're doing. You've got to be a, a, up to speed with them. Um, so you know, I might be in a book about, you know, the building of Coventry Cathedral or whatever, and I'm and I'm and I'm I'm, I'm, I'm at play with that person and their ideas, and I'm trying to make the book most itself. So I'm keeping myself out, and it's quite a strange game anyway. But also I'm protecting them from what is my job, which is the business side of things. You know, what cover to put on that book, how to pitch that to sales teams and publishing that, and that's business. Mm. That's publishing as industry. And that's already quite a nauseating blend, and it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. So then when I get home and I write, I'm, I'm basically... It, it, it's the, the, any velocity that I bring to it is, is impassioned by the desire to escape that thinking yeah. of knowing too much. I know too much about how literary fiction works and yeah. how and the signifiers we load books up with and all that kind of thing. And so the the so like nonsense poetry or or really violently hyper realistic writing about animals, a piece I've just written, is is my way of, of getting as far away as I possibly can from from the kind of good behaviour of modern literary publishing, whereby lots of different things need to be quite orderly and in play and and I think that, that everybody needs everybody needs to the thing they do in the day in order to get the energy to do the thing they do in the night, if you see what I mean. I don't know how you would think about that between the different forms you write in. Or lived experience. 
I live in a fantasy world of my own construction, and <laughs> currently, that I I just live to write. But I I find that my influences, I guess, to write are often not writing. They're not other writers. Um, so I think I'm quite musically attuned, so I have to have a lot of music in my life. I can't get through an hour without music, generally, um, and, and visual art. And um, So what what things influence you most in your writing? Is it that you spend a lot of time, well, you obviously spend a lot of time reading other writers, but what else is it that gives you the energy yeah. to want to write something? And obviously you have to write at length quite a lot of the time as a novelist. So yeah. you, you have to, I mean, I don't know, how long do you sometimes sit and write for it right, time. Yeah. It is so excruciating. The novel <laughs> is just so long. It's just, un- it's, it's actually unbearable. This recent one took four years and I guess I worked on it every day and that just seems, the thought of doing that again just makes me yeah. want to cry. But um, the thing I do to not be a writer is I, I play football, which means like the most brilliantly unwriterly, unpoety thing to do and I head the ball a lot and think about how it's damaging my brain and um, I'm kind of angry and unpleasant on the pitch and it's just a great other other world to me. I think you have to have physical things. It's, I, I think of writing actually you have to be very physically engaged. Um, it's not just about being sat and, and you know just writing something with a pen or typing. It never is. I, I have to expend a lot of physical energy to be able to write what I do. And recently I've been walking sometimes for four or five hours a day around London and then sitting down and writing because yeah. it gets me really pumped and need a lot of adrenaline sometimes. And I'll, I'll have like really, really loud music on and um, um, I, will, I will create an atmosphere myself in which I've got that spark and that energy. And it rarely comes from reading something else. Yeah. Um, I mean, it does sometimes, but rarely. So how, how do you, on a daily basis, if you felt really like I need to write something, do you feel like you need that sort of inner turbulence to do it? Or do you need to be quite calm and relaxed about it? I'm very squeezed because of the day job and because I've got three young kids. So I get home and, and I might be all burning up with political anger or, or frustrations or just itch, the, you know, the, 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 the scratchy, restless thing of needing to get something down and needing to, needing to get something out and at least enough that you can realize it's wrong or have a fiddle with it or something like that and then I've got I'm straight into cooking the tea and bathing the babies and needing to be needing to be responsible but also needing to be fun and not stressed out and not looking at my phone and stuff like that and then so that the amount of time I actually have is squeezed right down to nothing at the moment but I, I have to say that's quite good for me yeah it's quite I mean it's a bit like the pram in the hallway thing like the best things that ever occur to me are like as I'm wiping an ass <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and I and I believe in that I, I, I don't necessarily I mean I totally get why people like friends and need to need to go bird watching for six months to think about the great American novel but because I have no interest in writing the great American novel I'm absolutely happy to have a a, a pocket full of little bus tickets with scraps of writing on you know that seems to be how I do it and the the other is if you gave me a blank computer screen in 10 days I think I'd panic and I'd go wandering off and get lost and I think nothing would be less exciting to me than that freedom. I do think that there are lots of different obviously lots of different kinds of writers in the way that they work and the way that the process works and things but I've noticed that most writers need to be very tethered, so they need the day job, they need the family, they need a structure, they need a routine, because you've got so much going on in your mind that something has to rivet everything down, or, or you end up a bit like me, and just just writing as a way of existing, I, I'm sort of being quite grandiose, I'm a very grandiose person, <laughs> but, you know, you think about, there's, there's few writers like William Burroughs, for example, that would live a completely hectic life with no structure and be a great writer. It just doesn't really work like that because yeah. you need to keep everything contained. We're, we're very sort of there's a lot of there's an element of having to control a lot to be able to do that work. I find. Yeah, in my experience, I, I really thought that what I guess like a lot of writers need, what a lot of writers think. I thought I needed space and time and this magic like open zone with nothing else and I just having done it 
I just think no, actually, that doesn't help at all. Um, so yeah, I kind of agree. I just think you can maybe throw a lot at your life, and if you're a writer, you're gonna find those little moments and bus tickets and yeah. Yeah. do it. Someone says something nice somewhere. I can't. I'm terrible at remembering where I've read things, but someone says something nice about catching thought on the wing. You know that you're being if you're if you're attuned to the world and you're going to be writing or making art or music, whatever it is, you you are an open field and things are just being chucked at you the whole time yeah. and bouncing off you. And yeah. occasionally you just you you can just grab a thing and yeah. and so I guess it's that constant readiness and that does sound a bit mystical, but I think I do buy into it. It's that thing of listening all the time. Yeah. And that, that lovely you know that lovely Don Patterson poem about finding. You know when his kids say to him, what, what do you do? Explain your job. And he says, well, you know when you go to the beach and you bring back a bucket full of stuff and you go through it and find the things that you want to keep there interesting. That's what I do every day. Just yeah. turning the day's lived experience over until I find the things that are shiny and I put them in poems. I, I, I find that I get so much in my head every single day of my life that if I don't get it out by yeah. writing it, I would start to believe I'm on my little pony perhaps. You know, I would I'd just completely lose the plot. I think it's a very sane thing to do yeah. and I think that you need a sort of level of being in some sort of meditation. I imagine that the football is that for you, you know, I, I, I do a lot of things that are physical activity because they provide me with this sort of meditation where your mind's working and it's working at quite a unconscious frequency isn't there's a lot happening in it but you're so engaged physically you're not actually having to construct thoughts and imagine things but but it, it all helps you to get the work out doesn't it for me that is the drawing that's what yeah. I do when I'm drawing like in meetings at work I do do and early on in my time there I was ticked off a bit for the like <laughs> how elaborate my doodles were. Like you cannot have done that really quite good picture of the whole tree if you were listening, and it's like yeah. the exact opposite. Yeah. The quality of that tree means I was listening. Yeah. Like I've got to be, like, it's to do with me, it's the ancient thing of brain to hand. Yeah. Like even if I really need to think, I'll get a flower pot, because it's partly things like re displacement activities, but if I get a flower pot and loads of sugar cubes or acorns or little pebbles and just sit and chuck a pebble in the pot, that then that's what gets me that I can yeah. literally feel the gears of my mind yeah. ratcheting up back into proper proper fast thinking mode. You, I need you, something like that. Do you find that when you're writing sort of lyrically and you're writing poetically, um, do you feel like your mind is working at a different frequency from sitting, say, writing an essay? Because I do. I feel I, I call it a kind of heightened lucidity. That I sort of enter that I find that addictive. You used the word addictive before. It's an incredibly addictive thing. Yeah. I mean, I feel quite embroiled in the idea of bringing on those states of mind to keep being able to do it. Yeah, I always think when I'm writing fiction that there's this. I don't say like a fifth gear, but there's this side gear that is somehow the poetic um, access or something. I've used, I thought this metaphor of like in a musical when characters have reached, they've got an important decision to make, like maybe they're supposed to go to the mountain to take a dangerous trip, but they really don't want to. And the writer, me, hasn't thought of a really good reason why they might decide to go to the dangerous mountain. And then in the musical, they sing a song. And at the end of the song, they, they pack their bags and they're going. Yeah. In the same way, I like turn on turbo nuclear poetry button and then I just excuse myself from narrative yeah. like yeah. like sane narrative progression and just allow a jump but that's that's the constant permission you're giving yourself to be the master of your own work and that's a lovely thing my, my analogy which I think I nicked from someone actually is the cathedral so you are building a big building and it needs all the things a big building needs like a floor and walls and stuff and it needs to have an entrance and an exit and those sorts of things but what really happens, the really exciting thing is when you're doing that with one hand and then you're also doing some really fine detailing up in the roof that no one's ever going to see, just little gargoyles and tendrils and stuff. And that's where the work gets exciting. And it's yeah. when the work becomes your work, not anyone else's. 
is in is in the escaping of the as it were the drudgery of building a thing that has to have a certain mm. length or a certain style of structure and getting your as it, your, your poetic fifth gear is just banging away at the detail in the mm. corner and that's when you're like it's like a pot spinning and you're like to bring in another analogy and you're like <laughs> it's getting but you're, you're tapping it all the time it's fast it's tapping and then you break away from that kind of work and it's very much like you've 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 gone for a run or played a game of football or had sex or something. You're like, whoa, whoa and you're all blushed and hot. Yeah. That that's the thing. And if you only get that once or twice a week, fine by me. Yeah. And I'll leave stuff. I'll leave stuff in a notebook that I just know has got that hotness, and I'll and I'll know it's there for some time. Yeah. That's exciting, isn't it? That yeah. feeling of like, oh, in like a year's time, I might just open that and remember mm. this bit of energy. Well, I lost a notebook this year, and <clears throat> I don't mind that I lost a notebook in terms of I lost six months of working on a novel. I was pretty gutted but not you know I, I, I helped myself not feel too gutted by just like being a newspaper and seeing that most people had it a lot worse than like some writers lost his second novel on a train but I did feel gutted because I know for a fact that there were half a dozen hot hot things in there like things yeah. that I that circumstance and the muse and like what's energy or whatever it is won't recreate and they're mm. gone and it will, and it will kill you to try and recreate exactly them. exactly i sometimes yeah. have a little sensory sense of what they were i know i know what they felt like almost like like a synesthetic thing i don't know what they were though and i if just have to can, walk away if i can comfort you i have had that feeling then found the notebook and been painfully disappointed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a shopping list yeah it's the only thing I get anxious about when I go anywhere is my notebook. I'm not bothered about my phone. Yeah. I'm not bothered about anything, any of my possessions, not even my money. I'm not bothered about the notebook. Yeah. And I did lose one at Glasgow University, but I managed to find its way back to me eventually, which was a beautiful oh, thing. Good, yeah. I haven't actually even bothered looking at it, to be honest. But um, <laughs> I, I was wondering how much you both regard... Um, your own experiences and incorporating aspects of your own real life experiences and um, autobiographical details. How, how important do you find that incorporating into your work? I mean, are you really are you writing about yourself a lot of the time or not? I don't know yet. Probably, but probably from a kind of. Um, I mean, lot, lots of people asked me with the book, with the grief is the thing with feathers, how much of it was true. And the answer is none of it and all of it. You yeah. know, there, there is a certain self-deprecating sort of dazed kind, like metrosexual kindness about the bloke, which I think is close to the kind of person I like and I wanted him to be the kind of person I liked so that I could spend a few months with him and have, yeah. him love, have these people love him in the way that I wanted them to love him so that the book had some, had some glow of truth about it. But... You made, I made him up. I think I'll always be interested in, in dead parents because that was a profoundly formative thing for me. I'll always be interested in sentimentality and nostalgia because I feel that I feel them like a drug. I feel them drawing me and I recognise they're dangerous but I want them in my life. I think I'll always... I mean, it's a masculinity thing in a way. Like I'll always be a bit interested in scatological things because I think one of the weird things about being human in civilised, so-called civilised society is that we're in denial about it all the whole time. So I think there'll always be shits and farts and premature ejaculations in my book because I hate it when there aren't because it feels like a falsehood. But yeah, I'd like to move away from my. I'd like you know the next the challenge for me next is can I do plot divor you know divorced from form and can I do um, something that isn't based on the single thing I've been thinking about most my whole life, which is how much I miss my dad. So you know. Yeah, uh, but most great writers have an obsession. Yeah. And they will keep going into the wound till they die and that's what makes them really great um i know i do um no. I'll maybe have several but i've given myself permission to accept that mm. and say this is what i'm doing um even if i'm writing about the same thing yeah. when i'm nearly turning senile it's okay because that's yeah. obviously what i was that's what i was always going to do so maybe with submarine Obviously, you've been a teenage boy yourself, and that must have, have helped. <laughs> a few years. Yeah. Bloody hell. Did you, did, you, did you sort of have to go back into that experience, and was it all fictional? I remember being, I was 22, I guess, or 23, and I still felt I had a, like a living cord between me and my 15-year-old self, and... I read Adrian Mole and it really made me angry. 
I think in retrospect, not because it's a bad book, but because it was gener- gener- generationally like nothing to do with my generation. It felt completely false. And the fact that it was still being pulled out as an accurate representation of being a teenage boy mm. felt to me outrageous. And I kind of looked around for that fiction that represented me and my friends at that age. And there was nothing dark enough, nothing gross enough, nothing true enough. And so I thought, oh, this is you know lucky to like find something that maybe existed, but I didn't read it. And I still felt I was in a position to remember what it was like. Yeah, that, that was really like just trying to recall those feelings and that mind state of being kind of bulletproof and quite creative in certain ways and also a, a complete child and a kind of like quasi-intellect. You know, all these things where you can be everything at once at that weird transitional 15-year-old moment where you're seeing... You have access basically to your future self and to your childhood self and you flip-flop between the two and you also just think you know everything without <laughs> doubt which is an amazing feeling yeah mm. well, then when you write a po- poem are you working with some sort of construct as an idea of yourself when you're writing or are you writing as you i've generated i think there's probably a few versions of me but there's like a version of me who I put in my poems, like when I name myself, <clears throat> yeah. when I, you know, yeah. when I'm like a Joe character, and that's fun. I really enjoy that. I enjoy making him not a nice person, and that feels a good. Why does it feel good? He just, you know, obviously I have bad instincts. We all do, and I just find it fun to vocalise them. And I guess it feels risky in a fun way yeah. to put myself out there as like he's really into money. This version of me. And he's just kind of a bit of a dick and he loves football. That's not quite all he is, but it just seems, I guess in terms of the wider poetry reading that I do, I don't see that personality that much. So it Mm. amuses me. It is highly amusing. (laughs) You can tell that it's not, Mm. you know, yeah, it's it's a very beautiful thing. It give you a certain sort of freedom as well to, in terms of the craft, in terms of writing good lines of poetry, to not be in the mind of someone similar or, or identifiable, but not but close. You know? Right, yeah, identifiable in, so there's some, you get access to your own voice, but then you're playing within a, you're playing in a field which isn't that well yeah. used. So you've got access to more lines yeah. than you might have if you were doing something more. Who, who would you, who, what poets do you think have done that? Well, like... It's completely different, but I was just thinking about when we're talking about our themes. You know, there's that Frederick Seidel poem. I was about to say, do you mean like Frederick Seidel? Right. (laughs) I I repeat my themes. This is one of his lines. And he's been repeating his themes. I got his full book. And there is a little transition, but basically he's been writing the same poem every day for 60 years, whatever it is. Um, He's interesting because he takes it so far. Yeah. And without any apology, that like the lack of apology of a billionaire or however, however rich he is, you know, just he seems to actually embody the evil person he is in his poems, which makes it doubly interesting because, you know, I, I've never met him. Who knows? But that seems a fascinating position to take. I think it kind of fascinates me that a lot of people, if they, if they write about themselves, they want to paint themselves in a very good light. And we have lots of instances of quite abject um, things in our work. Not particularly that interesting. Do I know? No, I don't paint myself in a brilliant light. In fact, some of the things that I mention, people probably find them shocking because they're admissions of things that nobody really wants to admit to. Um, so I've I've sort of picked up on that with you both, and that's always been one of the many reasons that I really like what you do. I think we, I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm so disappointed in many things, but one of the things I'm disappointed in is that as a literary culture, we have not got, we're not very highly developed in our ability to divorce the author from the work. Yeah. That's so, it's so yes. crap and it's yeah. so boring that, that like a hundred years after Ulysses, we're still saying like, these poems seem to be largely autobiographical. Yeah. You know, yeah. how dull. Um, yeah. And, and, and what a curiously limited conversation that is, even if you, if, even if you go into it 
in a loving way, even if you go deep into Fred Sidell's poems and try and find out whether that's really Fred Sidell having pornographic thoughts about a woman on an aeroplane, yeah, yeah. where does that get you as a reader? I yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's boring. But, but, but really, I, you know, I still am in that habit, despite writing the thing myself and thinking, well, no one reading this, you know, my excuse to myself is every sensible reader separates mm. the, the author from the I voice, but I don't. When I'm reading, yeah. I, 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 but, but I that's find fine. It really that's a postmodern to, yeah. gesture. That's that's yeah. an acceptance that, that that no one, you know, that's like me banging on about. I wish we could read Ted Hughes' poems outside the biograph. Of course we can't. The point is we've got to grow up and accept that you cannot. The two are, are organically interlinked. What do you do then? Is it possible to to be self-conscious and critical and have your critical faculties about you while you identify what what he, you know what might be platinum what might be you know that 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 we should be able to do that now but when you say you know these readers like that's 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 my challenge i think as a publisher as well is like not editing things with with an imagined critic in mind you know and, and same with the right like getting rid of the voices of your fans as well as your critics like probably even harder with your fans because you're playing for them because you know they like what you're creating that's a difficult thing and do i think the only the only answer to that is a removal yeah not not not, not everyone can have a kind of alice oswald like removal from the world in which they're in which they're fully in tune with their ambition but i would i, I think it's it's beneficial when people try yeah what's your relationship to the reader then how do you feel about being so Sort of in the public eye as as writers, do you find it it's quite inhibiting because you know that lots of people have read your work. There's some sort of expectation maybe placed on you when you've done something quite successful. Um, a very very annoying question, I know, but I, I think gonna, people I be interested. Ask you the same thing. Has there been a, you know, you're like talking about your writing process being a daily like moment to moment experience. Has the experience of being on a fancy prize and having public adoration changed that process or is it just the same? Well, I think if you if you write or create art in any way and you do it because you have to or you're compelled to, prizes and things like that kind of don't fit into your um, artistic space or your creative space at all. They're actually quite, um, I found it, not not particularly not distracting, but just it just made me feel very 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 uncomfortable and weird. And the idea was that you had to be, you know, you have to be obviously grateful. It's a really big thing. It's an achievement. All these sorts of things line up and line up. But in actual fact, it's not. It doesn't benefit what you're trying to do. I mean, my whole life is, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to write things. I can't say that it's really benefited my work as a as a writer. I think it's all very interesting. I mean, this is about the, the business aspect of writing. It's not even a, um, a good uh, indicator of how good work is. No. It's not at all. I don't know how do you feel, how do you well, both feel about being successful writers, well, which you are. You'll have to talk about it, Joe, because I don't know yet. But the conversation with yourself is taxing, because yeah. say you start to write a poem, and a voice in your head says this is very different from the confessional poems that were in my last collection. I'm going to lose the, the, the sympathy or support of that readership or whatever. Like, I, you know, do, like, my set of choices would seem to be, do I go for another formally experimental piece? And, you know, because I was in an article and it compared me and a couple of other writers as the new experimentalist, or do I turn my back on that and write the story I want to write, which is actually very straightforward and conventional? Like, those are, those are crap questions to have in your head when you're trying to write something. Really so I are. just have yeah. to get them out of there yeah. and listen to the book. But, but we can't, like, who's tough enough to do that? I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trawling through my Amazon reviews or anything anymore because that's a mugs game. But I am, <laughs> I am, these things are in my head, and of course they are because I live in the world. Yeah. And I, you know. That's why I got my hair cut. You know that? <laughs> why? Someone in an Amazon re review said it was time. They worked out my age. They said I was 32 and it was time for me to get my hair cut. <laughs> Ouch. And I thought, ah, that won't change me. And then a year later I got my hair cut. Yeah. I saw Sally Rooney, the novelist who's about to be published by Faber, saying on Twitter, does, this, does having a novel published mean people are able to talk about my appearance? 
Like, that's bang out of order. I, I, it is bang out of order. There's some terrible things. Somebody actually said, um, how, um, I'm an unreliable narrator because I've obviously had some bad relationships. I thought that was beautiful. I've got to put I've got to put that as an epigraph in something, haven't I? But you, there is some really bizarre things. Like a lot of people claim to know me when they meet me and, yeah. and they will talk about things that have happened to me even though I've never had a conversation with them before. And, you know, you, you can't physically interact with that person ever yeah. again because you just feel it's just beyond bizarre can you not understand this is an art form you know but we come from a generation of people that are sensitive and i'm pro-choice i i I wouldn't have it any other way i I, one of the one of the mistakes i think of the generations above us was that kind of that shoring up closing the door to all criticism and just powering on with what you're doing i think it it belied all kind of insensitivity social and economic and class and religion all sorts of things that were fundamentally an unkindness in my eye, and I don't want to be unkind, and I don't want to ignore, if you put something into the world, I don't want to ignore the response it gets, I want to be involved in that conversation, I'm interested yeah. in it, I'm curious, and, I, and that, that may well be part of my fragile ego, but, but to me it's just, a, it's a belonging, you're part of a thing. Do you feel like you need the company of other writers a lot? I do, I, I really do, because I feel like they're the kindred people that I understand, and, and a lot of other people, I just don't feel that... If people don't understand what it is I do, and then I have to talk to them about it, and you know they they quite oh how fascinating! Yeah. I need to be with people that I can have those conversations with about the work, but but not just that. I do feel like we're kind of a kindred yeah. um, group of people. Uh, maybe you don't. I don't I'm know. spoiled because I'm around them yeah. anyway, yeah. and when I'm not around them, I feel abject fear. Yeah, and I, you know. So I've gone from being someone that was a bit cynical about like book fairs and stuff to loving it especially post-brexit like you know getting them around to my house like introducing them to my kids saying you know this is this is Salvatore he's Italian he's smelly he's really smelly but he's great he publishes like weird illustrated books like, these are my people and they're eccentric and they're interesting and they've devoted their life to literature I love them so yeah I'm a, but, but you know I spend my whole days talking yeah. about books which is a great privilege yeah with people that, that give a shit about it yeah. mm. do, do you feel the same I do yeah um I just started teaching and having not done it for a long time, I'm teaching a weekly workshop and everyone gives a shit and they all really want to be good and it's just brilliant. Mm. Just come in and they, and they kept asking me, like, are you okay? Because there's been, a, it's been like, it's been really interesting. It's had its like moments, there's been moments of tension and they're like, are you okay? Because the, the last tutor, we think she, um, she quit after, <laughs> after a term teaching us. I was like, no, this is, this is brilliant. I'm mm. loving it. Mm. Yeah, so what what have you both got going on at the moment? What are you working on? What are you trying to do with your lives? <laughs> Go on, Joe. I have finished a novel and it comes out this time next year, so February 2018. It's called The Adulterance and published by Hamish Hamilton. And in my life, I'm working mostly on poems, which feels like a luxurious and beautiful thing. Have you got a collection? I would like to have a collection. Yeah. I don't have one, but... I'm certainly eyeing it up. Wonderful. Yeah, it feels good. Have you published poetry since your Faber pamphlet? Ooh, it's a few years ago, isn't it? It's a few years, yeah. i got a few in the back pocket, mm. waiting to come out. I'll buy it. <laughs> what are you up to? Well, mate, not a lot. Struggling a bit with the next book, but I'm not in a hurry. I'm doing it for the sake of it. I've just written a piece for a sculptor called Nicola Hicks. Who wrote to me and said she'd like my book and would I would I would like to write for her uh, catalogue? And I, she said, just invited me to a studio which around here somewhere, and it was incredible. She said, no pressure. If you respond, you respond. And if you don't, don't worry. And I walked in and responded in a big way. Yeah. She makes these huge straw beasts, sometimes half man, sometimes animals, like a lion on top of a dog, like people becoming minotaurs, half man, half crow, all this stuff. Wow. made of straw covered it then with black paint incredible and I went home that night and just outpoured this thing that's about it really that's great um, thank you very much for listening and thank you to Joe and thank you to Max and thank you to David Turner <laughs>